He was perhaps the greatest prophet since the days of Moses. Not since that time had a voice echoed through the hills of Israel like the voice of this man. Not since Moses had Israel witnessed such dramatic miracles. Never had the heavens been shut that neither dew nor rain should fall for over three years. Not since the days of Moses had the people of God seen such dramatic demonstrations of God's visible presence. There on Mount Carmel, in answer to Elijah's simple prayer, fire fell from heaven, consumed a sacrifice, the wood, the altar, and even the water that was around the the trench, around the altar. Elijah had stood boldly on that mountain before God, but only a few hours later, weary, drenched from the soaking rain, and worn from the strain of the day's events, he would be startled by the death threats of wicked Jezebel. He would flee, running for his life for 40 days until he reached Mount Sinai, a place where he felt he could finally speak with God. There on the mountain of Sinai, God spoke tenderly with his wayward prophet. What are you doing here, Elijah? I love the words of the old King James. What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah cried out to God, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek my life. We find that in 1 Kings 19. In fact, we'll spend a little time there in 1 Kings 19 if you want to turn there with me. 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah felt all alone. He felt as though in all of Israel there was no one left. And he, the lone prophet of God, was on the brink of death. Surely were he to return to Israel, he would be killed by the jealousy of wicked Queen Jezebel. Have you ever been at a point in your life, my friends, where you felt all alone? Perhaps you're the only one in your family who believes the way the Bible teaches. Perhaps you're the only one in your school, perhaps the only one in your workplace, the only one who is truly following God. And it's easy to feel all alone. It's easy to feel like God's work depends entirely on you. It's easy to feel that burden, that weight of carrying God's message alone until that weight can become a crushing weight on your shoulders. And I can imagine Elijah crying out in his heart, Lord, the work to be done is so great. How can I possibly begin this work against such great odds and accomplish it alone? I might as well give up. Lord, just take my life. Take my life right here. I've already failed you. I've already run when I shouldn't have run. I've already failed you. Oh, Elijah, how can you be so foolish, Elijah? Don't, do you think that the God of heaven, the God who brought down fire from heaven on that altar, is going to fail to finish the work he has begun? Do you think that it all depends on you, Elijah? Look at verse 18 of 1 Kings 19. God tenderly opens the curtain to Elijah 
He felt as though he is all alone, and yet God says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you may think you're all alone, but you're not alone. I've had my hand over Israel, and there are still 7,000. Now, 7,000 is not many compared to, I don't know the population of Israel at this time, perhaps in the millions. 7,000 is a very few, but it's a lot more than one. In fact, 7,000 is enough for a small army. And God had a small army, a remnant in Israel, not the majority by any means, but a remnant who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And among this remnant was a pious man and his family, the family of Shaphet. This God-fearing man had a son, Elisha, who had all the qualities of a great leader. He was humble and gentle, but he was energetic. He was ready to serve. He wasn't eager to take the highest position, but even as a young man, he was happy to work on the farm, tilling the soil, following the plow. You know, Jesus talks about being faithful where we find ourselves. He says in Luke 16 and verse 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. You know, I think it's important for each one of us to realize you don't have to stand in a pulpit. You don't have to be a great evangelist in order to serve God. Wherever you find yourself, whether that be in the workplace whether that be in the home with children or grandchildren, whether that means you can't even leave your home, but perhaps you can send a card of encouragement. Maybe you can pick up the telephone and call someone who's discouraged. Maybe you you can't do anything but get down on your knees and pray. My friends, God has a work for you to do. Are you faithful? Will you be faithful in the little work or the big work that God has called you to do? I love the words of Mrs. Ellen G. White. She writes in Prophets and Kings, Many long for special talent with which to do a wonderful work, while the duties lying close at hand, the performance of which would make are lost sight of. Let such ones take up the duties lying directly in their pathway. Success depends not so much on talent as on energy and willingness. You know, last, last week, uh, Danny Chaco talked about success. And what does it mean to be successful? Here, Mrs. White is talking about success. It is not the possession of splendid talents that enables us to render acceptable service, but the conscientious performance of daily duties, the contented spirit, the unaffected, unaffected, sincere interest in the welfare of others. In the humblest lot, true excellence may be found. The commonest tasks, wrought with loving faithfulness, are beautiful in God's sight. And you know, this is the picture of the prophet Elisha. As he is there following the plow, tilling the soil, doing the work of a common farmer, not knowing that God has in store for him perhaps one of the greatest callings of all time to become a prophet in Israel and the successor to the great prophet Elijah. 
And as he is there, tilling the soil, along comes a man, this man Elijah. Elijah was no stranger to Elisha, hardly a home in Israel would have failed to recognize the great prophet Elijah, the one who had stood boldly there on Mount Carmel, the one who may have had been hunting as a wild animal for so many years. But Elisha comes there, and Elijah comes, and as Elisha is, is plowing, is walking along, doing the duty that lies nearest, he takes the garment, the mantle, that is upon his shoulders, And as he passes by Elisha, he casts it there on Elisha's shoulders and walks off and keeps keeps walking as as if he hadn't done anything. But in that instant, Elisha realized that his whole life had changed. You see, there was something special about that garment, that mantle that Elijah wore. Now, a mantle is kind of like a hairy uh, animal skin or, or some kind of garment that, or clothing that would be worn over the shoulders. We find the first mention of this in the Bible in Genesis twenty-five, twenty-five. It's talking about baby Esau, who was hairy all over. It says, like a, like a cloak or like a mantle. This is the first mention of this, of this word. Achan in uh, Joshua chapter 7, you know the story about Achan who stole the... Uh, goodly Babylonish garment from the spoil of Jericho. Well, that garment that he stole was a mantle that perhaps may have been worn by a king. We have record that the king of Nineveh uh, wore a mantle and he took it off when he was mourning and repenting of his sin there in the book of Jonah. But by this time in the history of Israel, the mantle had particularly come to represent the garb of a prophet. This is what a prophet wore. We find in Zechariah 13, verse 4, that the false prophets would put on a mantle so that people would think that they were true prophets of God. So it's easy to see how Elisha would recognize instantly when Elijah cast his mantle upon his shoulders that this was no accident. This was no ordinary event, but this was symbolic of a calling that God had for his life. Now, it wouldn't be easy in those days. It wouldn't be easy today to take up the calling of being a prophet. You see, Elisha was the son of a comparatively wealthy farmer. Now, everyone in Israel at this time, I'm I'm sure that that, uh, even the wealthy ones were falling in hard times because of the famine and the drought that had lasted for three years. But they were making up for lost time. And uh, Elisha was plowing the ground and they were, had high hopes of regaining the wealth and, uh, that they had. They, they had 12 yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxen. This was no, you know, little subsistence farmer that's going along following his one donkey that he, he has, you know, along the rocky slopes. This was a farmer that's doing this for a living. He had, could have, have had a comfortable life. Elijah, however, had a difficult life. Running, running from the King Ahab, running to Mount Sinai, carrying a message that was not pleasant, was not well received, and Elisha knew that this would be his lot in life. He could have turned back, and in fact, 
God gave him that very, or Elijah gave him that opportunity. As Elijah turns to run and starts running after Elijah, Elijah says, what have I done to you? You can go back. Consider the choice that you're making. Think about what you're choosing before you take up this mantle. Elijah turns back around. He goes back to his oxen. Yes, the life of a prophet is hard. But Elisha is not having second thoughts. No, he takes a, a yoke of oxen and he sacrifices them there on the spot. He takes the, the implements, the, the wood that he, of the implements that he is using to plow the ground and he burns them there as wood for the sacrifice. In an instant, he goes from following the plow to literally, as it were, burning the bridges to his former occupation. Once, when a rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked what he should do to inherit eternal life, Jesus replied, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. In this case, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, for it says he had great possessions. He was unwilling to part with his former life. He was unwilling to part with his wealth. But in the case of Elisha, it was the same decision. But Elisha, but Elisha made the better choice. He chose instantly to give up the life of ease, of comparative wealth, for the humble lot and life of a prophet. You know, there's an interesting uh, phrase in this story that a friend asked me about recently. It says, Elisha asked, let me kiss my father and mother first, and then I will follow you. It sounds perhaps reminiscent of a story in the New Testament of a man who wanted to be Jesus' disciple, but he says, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus turns to him and says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And I've wondered about this connection. Why is it that, that it seems almost as though Jesus rebuffs the, the offer of this disciple where Elisha had made almost the same comment there? Let me go kiss my father and mother first. There's an important difference, though. You see, Elisha was saying, let me just go and bid my father and mother farewell. Honor them, you know, say, farewell, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going to a new life. The want-to-be disciple of Jesus had a different attitude in mind. He didn't say, let me go bid my father farewell. He said, let me go bury my father. Now, it wasn't that his father had died, but in other words, his father was, was getting up there in years. He was old, and he felt like, first of all, I need to live my life with my father until my father passes away. And then when I am free of all the other obligations of life, then I will come and become a disciple of Jesus. Now I want to ask you, how long was Jesus on this earth with his disciples? About three, three and a half years, right? It would have been lo longer than that just for this young man's father to live out the rest of his life. There was not time. And besides, when Jesus calls, our calls us in our lives, does he call us and say, in 20 years, I want you to do something. In 10 years or 5 years, I want you to do something. Or does he call us to make a commitment now, today, to follow him?
Elisha made that commitment. And though it says he went to bid his father and mother farewell, he did not delay. He hastened, and in that very day, right there on the spot, he sacrificed the oxen as worship to God and as a dedication of his life to future ministry. This is what Elisha does. It would have been incredibly humbling for Elisha to go from the role of a farmer to becoming the ro- in the role of a prophet. But that's not what he did. Now it says there in verse 21, So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah. We've, got, we've, we've talked about all that part of the story. But it says he became his servant. Yes, he followed Elijah, but he didn't immediately become the prophet Elijah. He didn't immediately take up that mantle, though it was symbolically placed upon his shoulders. Elijah kept that mantle. And for maybe seven or eight years, we hear almost nothing about young Elisha. We find in 2 Kings 3, verse 11, that Elisha was known as the one who poured water over the hands of the prophet Elijah. Pouring water over his hands. The job of a humble servant. Anyone could have done that. Why would God call this young man, this bright, intelligent man, to a lot of service? To doing the job that anybody could do. Because, my friends, it was by his close association with Elijah that Elisha was learning day by day what it meant to be a prophet, to be a messenger of God. Over the past several weeks, we've been talking in different ways about different stories of the Bible that illustrate this principle of mentorship, of an older person, usually an older person, who takes a younger person, who takes the next generation and intentionally trains and instills within them the principles of godliness and what it means to walk with God day by day, hour by hour. You see, all of Israel could see Elijah standing there on the mountaintop on Mount Carmel. They heard his prayer by the altar. They saw his courage against the prophets of Baal. But Elisha saw more than that. Elisha saw Elijah on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. He saw him on the mountaintop, and he saw him on the valleys. And in in those years of doing nothing, it would seem, but the humblest tasks, pouring water over the prophet's hands, Elisha was gaining an important knowledge and strength that would enable him to carry the message and the mission of Elijah far beyond the time when Elijah would be caught up into into glory. You know, in the same way, my friends, I believe God's... We can serve God no matter our lot in life. It does not matter if he calls us to something great or something small. But I, I believe, my friends, I sincerely believe that for each one of us, there comes a moment in our lives... When God makes his calling clear to us and he calls us to change. Yes, he goes with us. He works with us in our present occupations. 
But I believe to each one of us, there comes a point in our lives when, like the prophet Elijah, casting his mantle upon Elisha, he makes clear to each one of us, this is the work I have for you to do. It requires a sacrifice. It requires a change. It requires denying self. Perhaps stepping down, as it were, from where I was into a lower position. The position, perhaps, of a servant. And yet, through that humble service, God can use us to accomplish more, far more, than we would have ever accomplished on our own. One of the amazing uh, stories, and this is a, a story for another time, in the Old Testament, is the account of the schools of the prophets. You see, not only was Elijah mentoring Elisha, but through these schools of the prophets, which were actually set up way back in the days of Samuel, but had fallen into disrepair, Elijah rebuilt and reestablished these schools to be training centers, not just for one, but for a multitude of young men who would become the next generation of godly leaders in Israel. The king and the king's court had long since fallen into idolatry. But God raised up another movement, a remnant, as it were, within Israel, who would preserve the knowledge and the fear of God. And God had revealed to Elijah at this point that very, very soon he would be caught up into heaven. And before he leaves this earth, Elijah makes it a point. He says, I need to visit these schools of the prophets one more time. I need to encourage these young men. I need to encourage them in their faith, in their walk with the Lord. Elijah knows what's going to happen to him, but he, he thinks that no one else knows. God has revealed it specifically to him. But God has also, unbeknownst to Elisha, revealed this secret to Elisha and to the sons of the prophets. So from place to place, Elijah goes, and then he says, I'm going to go to the next place. And he keeps telling Elisha, don't, don't keep following me. You're going to wear yourself out. Is this really, are you really ready to make the commitment of being the next prophet? Are you really ready to follow me? He gives him the opportunity to back off, but Elisha says no. And, and it's funny, the account there that we find in, in, uh, Second Kings chapter 2, how from place to place to place that, that the prophets, the sons of the prophets, these students in the schools of the prophets are saying to Elisha, shh, shh, do you know what's going to happen to Elijah? God told us what's going to happen to Elijah. And Elisha says, I know, I know. But they're, they're keeping quiet about this, keeping quiet about this. And finally, Elijah and Elisha are walking together and they get to the brink of the Jordan River. And I can imagine the river is swollen, just like it was when the children of Israel were ready to cross over and conquer Jericho. The river is swollen. They have no way to cross. And Elijah takes his mantle from his shoulders, rolls it together, and strikes the waters of the Jordan. And the waters of the Jordan part, a wall on this side and a wall on this side. And together, Elijah and Elisha pass through and pass over the Jordan. As they pass over there, Elijah knows, and Elisha knows, that Elijah is going to be caught up to heaven. And Elijah says there in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 9, 
And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Make a wish. Now, it's not often, it's not every day that someone comes to me, and I, a, a true prophet of God, this is not a genie in a bottle or anything, this is a true prophet of God. Whatever you want, what can I give you? What can I do for you before I'm taken away from you? What would you ask? What would you ask for if someone could give you anything you wanted? A million dollars? Ten million dollars? A new house? Give me three houses. I'll give them two to the poor and I'll just live in one. I mean, that's a, that's a very magnanimous thing to do, right? No. No. You know, Jesus said, made a comment in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And if Elisha has learned anything over the course of the last seven or eight years that they have been together, it is that the power and strength of Elijah's ministry comes not from within himself, but from the Holy Spirit of God that God has poured out into his heart. And Elijah, Elisha desires more than anything else in this world to have that same spirit, that same infilling with the Holy Spirit that Elijah has. Because he knows that if God has called him to this ministry, if God has called him to this mission, there is no way that he can accomplish it unless he has the same spirit. And so Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And so Elijah says in verse 10, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Why was it such a hard thing for the spirit of Elijah to fall upon Elisha? And why this sign? You know, the spirit of Elijah was truly not his own spirit, but the spirit of God. And you know, the scripture says spiritually things, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So if Elisha is going to receive the spirit of God, God is willing to pour out the spirit, but Elisha must be willing to receive it. His heart must be right in order to receive it. God cannot grant that spirit without that preparation of heart. And so Elijah knows that if Elisha is spiritually in tune, that Elisha will see him when he is taken away, will see him being caught up into heaven. And that will be the sign that his heart is ready to receive the spirit that God is ready to pour into Elisha. In verse 11, then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And I love verse 12 because verse 12 is the answer to Elisha's prayer, the cry of his heart. And Elisha saw it. He saw Elijah going up. That was the sign. He saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. But as Elijah ascends to heaven in this fiery chariot with the fiery horses, and Elisha is standing there watching this chariot going up, something 
falls down from the sky, as it were, and falls down at the feet of Elisha. It was a familiar object to him by now. It was the mantle that had been around the prophet's shoulders. The same mantle that had been cast onto his own shoulders so many years before. The same mantle that Elijah had just rolled up and struck the waters of the Jordan with. And now it lay there at his feet. And he reaches down and takes up that mantle. With a cry of faith, it says he took a, he, he took hold of his own clothes and tore them. He took up the mantle of Elisha that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the banks of the Jordan. And with a cry of faith, in verse 14, he cries out and says, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he struck the water of the Jordan. Is God going to come through for Elisha in the same way that he came through for his master, the prophet Elijah? And when he had struck the waters, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elijah. The mantle. This cloak. There was nothing magical about the mantle. No, but it was symbolic of the spirit that God promised to give to Elisha. Now his master was gone. Could Elisha carry on the work of Elijah? Could he carry that mantle? Only by the power and the spirit of God. I love these, this quote from the words of Ellen White, also in Prophets and Kings. When the Lord in his providence sees fit to remove from his work those to whom he has given wisdom, he helps and strengthens their successors if they will look to him for aid and will walk in his ways. They may be even wiser than their predecessors, for they may, be, they may profit by their experience and learn wisdom from their mistakes. Henceforth, Elisha stood in Elijah's place. He who had been faithful in that which was least was to prove himself faithful also in much. My friends, I believe that we are living today in the very last days of this earth's history. For centuries, God has been calling to men and women, calling to men and women dying, perishing in a world of sin, calling to give us a message of his love and grace. And it may seem to us like it seemed to Elijah of old that those who are carrying that message of God are carrying it alone. But God says to us, as he said to Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. My friends, in these last days, God has a remnant people. He speaks in the book of Revelation of a group of 144,000 who are sealed with the seal of the living God. An end-time prophetic movement who take his message of love one last time to a perishing world. He says in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 20, 29, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. 
and also on my men servants and on my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. My friend, God has promised to pour out his spirit in a way like never before. Like the latter rain fell in the land of Israel, so he has promised that the rain of his Holy Spirit will fall in the last days that will make even the day of Pentecost in the New Testament pale in comparison. My friends, my appeal to you today is this. Will you, will we take up the mantle that is left to us? My friends, is God calling you to make a sacrifice for his cause? Is he calling you to leave behind a life that you have led? Perhaps even a good life to sacrifice the the oxen, to burn the implements as it were, and to take up the mantle of ministry. Don't look back. My friends, is your lot in life, is your calling a humble one? Do your work faithfully. For he that is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. It is not in our own strength, my friends, but it is only as we receive a double portion of God's Holy Spirit, as we open our hearts to discern those spiritual things, that we can hope to accomplish the work that God has called us to do. Very soon, my friends, we will see the outpouring of that latter rain. May we ever press boldly onward and upward, for we will all soon be called to our heavenly home. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, it is your desire that we press on to higher ground. Lord, we know that you are calling us individually and, yes, collectively, to come up to higher ground, to take up the work that others have left for us. Lord, help us. May we be imbued with a double portion of your Holy Spirit and empowered to carry on the work that you have given to us. For we look forward to your soon coming in the clouds of heaven when you will come to take us home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.